That's what more could you possibly want? What more do you want? Quinn, it's been a fucking month. month. A month. You know what else is fun about this one is that we're now, we're like recording very close to when people are hearing it. Oh, Which yeah. we don't usually do because we, we backlog our recordings. Well, because you were gone for a month. Right. But it's like, this is coming out next week. Holy this feels shit. like modern day America here. Oh my gosh. We're here. We have. It's happening. We're together. It's live. I do want to start with a story time. Dear readers, buckle in. I want to share a story that was really funny and also was really alarming. Oh, so, my God, I can't wait. So it was really, truly, darkly, creepily, starring Carrie Epema. Featuring Quinlan Posner. As herself. As herself. And imagine the 80s, like, sitcom slow motion point and nod. Okay, so I watched The Beloved Alan for two weeks. Oh, the dog. The dog. I watched Alan for the... I watched Alan the dog. It was super fun. He's a really good boy. And... um. While I was watching Alan, I was walking him late at night um, before his last, his final bedtime walk. Whoa. Well, no. Did you put him down? I put him down. It was his final you walk. You made that decision for them. And you know what? It's easier. They didn't have to make it themselves. They came home to a dead dog. It's They didn't fine. have to wait till he got sick or anything. You know what? And it, the emotional trauma of having to put a dog down yourself, it was easier when Aunt Carrie did it, you know? <laughs> so I'm taking him out for a walk. Or no, it's not a late night walk. It was like after a day of work. So I... It doesn't matter what time it was. Stop asking. Stop stop making me tell this story in a bad way, dear readers. That's on you. So I'm walking the DOG, and this little boy comes up and is like, oh, my God, a dog. And he was so enthusiastic about Alan, and Alan was a really good boy. And so he was petting the dog. The little boy was, like, kissing Alan's head, like, really loved Alan. And his mom was with him. And it was. I was like, how old are you to this little boy? And he was like, I'm three years old. And this little boy was like, how old are you? Which I love. Like, so pure. No. Do you always answer right away? I'm always like, I'm 39. <laughs> like, well, I said, I'm 32. Yeah. And his mom was with him. And she was like, oh, my God, you do not look 32. And I was like, and I said, and I think it was okay. But I said, you know, I don't have any kids, you know. I, I, you yeah. know, I said that. And uh, we were talking, and her son was just so sweet with Alan. She loved Alan. Very nice. And she's like, I'm 33. And I was like, oh, great, 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 cool. And then we kept talking. She's like, you really don't look 32. And I said, how old do you think I am? And she goes, 40s. Are you fucking kidding me? Wait, the story is not over. The story I is really not like this lady. Finished. I then. hope you befriended her, because she's funny. All right. Yep. And Griffin is pissed that we're recording Griffin and he's is... playing with the ball right at the fucking wall in the middle of my incredible story. I'm just going to text Matt. Could Griff play with that ball in heaven? <laughs> putting down dogs, putting down kids. It's a whole thing. Oh, my God. What did Matt say? He said, Jesus, that went dark fast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on my period. What do you expect? Flash forward that week, I was taking care of a dog. I was also taking care of a friend's car. 
in New York, you have to move it to other side when there's street cleaning. And, you know, my friend needed some help. So I offered to help. So I'm so I decided to go to Westchester Mall and make a Midwest day of it. I go to Cali- uh, I go to um, a Cheesecake Factory. Real fun. You know, just like fun mall vibes. And I go into Aritzia and I'm trying on clothes. And I don't know if you guys know this about Aritzia. I love Aritzia. I think they have really cool stuff. None of the clothes fit me. Like I got really? the biggest size pants and none of it fit me. It was very traumatizing. I'm, and they don't have... I didn't realize they were like that. They run really small or I am big. I mean, I do wear a large Aritzia, <laughs> yeah, so I guess Which I did Which feels actually that. crazy to me because you're a petite. <laughs> so anyways, so That I'm, woman on Etsy doesn't think so. <laughs> that woman on Etsy does not think so. So, But she heard all about it. So I, I'm trying on a bunch of jeans. Y'all, I'm looking for the perfect jean. I can't find it, but I'm looking for it. I'm trying all these jeans. They don't fit me. And in the dressing rooms at Aritzia, there's no mirrors because you have to go out and, like, model it in front of people, which is just, nope. like, an aggressive thing to do. Whoa. So I put on the one outfit that fits me. It's, like, a pair of leather pants that are honestly too big and a crop top sweater, which is too small. And I'm walking out. Like a great outfit. <laughs> it's really a mullet <laughs> Sounds like looks. a recipe for feeling really good about yourself. None of what I per- was trying out. None of it made me feel good about myself. Like the dressing room, it was jarring. So I'm walking out. It's going to get worse, Quinn. This is the same week I got called 40. I'm walking out of the dressing room and I'm waiting for my friends to just like see the pants if they even like like the shape of them. And also just because like I didn't want to see my body because I was like, how bad do I look? And I looked bad, but I didn't say <laughs> that like first. It's like vibes where you yeah. were like, you know what? This is going to be really bad, but I got to go out I there gotta, and look. I got, I got to brave it. You know what? I'm all about body positivity. You're beautiful no matter where you're at. So you know what? Own it, Carrie. Let's go. So I go out and this woman is sitting in front of the mirror and she was like, yeah, I tried on like every leather pair of pants. Like they don't look good on me either. And I was like... I didn't say they didn't look good on me, actually. That's funny that you said that. And she's That's like, not, did you say that? No. Oh, but I was, like, oh my I was God. like, I don't know. She's like, yeah, none of them look good on me either. And I was like, mm hmm, mm hmm, mm hmm. And, and then, hey, making gets, friends everywhere. It gets worse, Quinn. <laughs> and then she, she was like, yeah, I tried on like literally every style they had. None of them fit me. You're what, 40s? <laughs> and I go, thank you. I'm 32. And I walked away. That was the second time that week that I was told I looked 40. <laughs> Frankly, it's a hate crime um, because I hated it. And I the worst part was my friends were all in the dressing room trying beautiful shit on that actually fit them. So I go into my dressing room facing a wall of clothes that do not fit me, having been called 40 in a vulnerable state. And I have to sit out and watch this woman try on more clothes that fit her body and she looked older than me. That's the worst. She looked so much older than me, I thought. And then I had to wait until my friends came out so I could whisper the story to them so that we could laugh about it. Because when you share a story, you laugh about it. And yeah. I want to be very clear, dear readers. 40's hot. 40's beautiful. I don't, you don't have want any to issues. be told you look 40 when you're 32. It's not There's, fun. There were th- twice in a fucking week this happened to me. And I... um. Yeah, I'm not well. Um, I'll show you a picture of what I looked like after I got called for. I sent this to two of my friends. This is when I got called 40. And please note <laughs> Alan in the background Aww. being like, I don't see it. <laughs> it was twice a week I got told I looked 40. Do I look 40? No. I think people confuse big boobs with age. Oh, interesting. I do. Although I was wearing a full-on winter jacket with this one. Like... Height 
and boobs. I look age, forty I at least whenever I'm leaving a Marco Polo, and I know that because I have to watch my face the whole time. Which Marco Polo? Please think of a new way. But I'm always like, it's also weird because you're like trying to talk to your friends, but you're like, I have that many forehead wrinkles when I make that face. Like you can't totally stay on the thread of even what you're saying. The forehead wrinkle game is so hard to, you know, because you have like. The Botox crew, which is great. Like, do what, do what makes you feel good. I wanted to get Botox until I saw season two, Love is Blind. And then I was watching Shayna's face a lot. And I haven't I seen it concerned. yet. Spoiler alert. There's a girl that definitely, I think, has Botox. and You can she, tell when people have Botox. Well, like, they... When their forehead is paralyzed. You know, on the reunion show, everyone was making really powerful faces. I'm not giving you any spoilers, but obviously it's a lot of feelings yeah. dredged up. And there were a lot of faces. But every time the camera went to her... She would just squint and her whole rest of her face would stay the same. And I was like, that is so scary looking. You know, I don't have issue with it. I've been tempted to get it myself. I think because if you're on social media, if you're on, if you see like, you know, I have, there was this article today that I just like skimmed by and it was like, Cameron Diaz doesn't care what she looks like. And it was because the the conversation is that she's left being an actor and she doesn't have to like maintain her quote looks although she's gorgeous Mm -hmm. and like but i think because instagram we're all basically in the entertainment industry in a way and we're constantly comparing one another to it and it's like will there be a time when we when like when when wrinkles will be back like will it be i don't think they're gonna circle back no i just uh this fear of aging is just so to me it's also a fear of ego mm-hmm. like do i want to spend my money on this thing yeah i'm tempted to do like what the housewives do when they're like oh i have a deviated septum so i just said as long as you're going in there <laughs> just do this and this because they're already in there i, I mean, kind of want to be like i'm starting to get headaches i've heard botox is really good for that <laughs> like i've heard, I thought about getting a breast reduction for sure but i'm like i want to if i have kids i want to breastfeed and like i know you can there's but i I don't know. I feel like I just wait till after breastfeeding to see where where they lay, where they land, where because they land. Because it's going to be gonna change. That's a... <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I'm curious of like you know, I don't want to do any surgery on them. I feel that before you know they're going to change drastically if I get pregnant. If you know, if I find a human who would want to inseminate me, mm-hmm. which is at this <laughs> point is the bar that we're. <laughs> seeking to clear it's so dark who woke up this morning and was like mom um i want to learn how to read before i go to school today and i was like sure yeah okay so he was like i'm trying to feed him breakfast and get him dressed and he's like running around with a dr seuss book pointing at words getting really frustrated he has not tried to read at all until this morning so it was a pretty frustrating uh, goal that he set for himself to try to learn in the uh, hour before as we're getting ready for school to learn how to read. So he was like pointing at words being like, what does this even say, mom? And what like, he was saying. Oh my God. And then he was guessing. He was like, I already know this word. And he'd like point to the word morning and he'd be like, 
day because I sounded it out. And I was like, well. <laughs> you, you just mean, you looked at the picture. The, you just memorized the book. And incorrectly at that. So anyway, but stressful just, warning. Uh, tried to teach Go how to read. Why do you think he wanted to learn? Do you think his friends know how to read? It's I think a- it's because he's, you know how he got really into math? Like, addicted to math. So I bought him, like, this extra subscription because he loved Number Blocks, the show. Oh, my God. He was just British. And now he's watching Alpha Blocks, which they're like, we can laugh. We can sing. We can do anything. And they, like, make words. It's a little confusing because they do call Z, Z. UK. So it's really cute when he goes to school and he's like, Z. But, um... Yeah, so he's really into spelling. And he's going to spell honor, H-O-N-O-U-R. Oh, my God. check with fucked. a Q. He's going to really <laughs> go for it. My can- my Canadian writing partner, he'd be like, you mean the Czechua? And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> CK, bitch. Czechua. And then I slapped him across the face. And he was like, I'm so sorry. So you got to treat those Canadians. <laughs> They're too nice. Slap it out of him is what I always say. <laughs> Let's do stories. Oh, no, no. How about we talk about Megan? <gasps> Megan, 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 you join Patreon again. <laughs> Megan, I'm begging you to be friends with me because you are a modern day hero. What? It went everywhere. It went everywhere. And I, a modern day hero, <laughs> what is the other way? Is it an olden day hero? Is the question. <laughs> what is the difference? <laughs> Megan, you're a mo- Megan, the modern day hero. Love that for her. Love that for you. We Megan, need- I said that because there's an extra H in your name, and it must be for hero, because there's a hero right inside of you. Is it M-E-G-H-A-N? You got it. That's not an extra H. <laughs> she has an H. Moving on. It sounds like it was like, it's like M-E-H-G-H-A-N. You know what? You bring up a good point. And um, I'm just going to use this as a springboard nice to say, segue. speaking of H. Talk to me. Why don't we thank Harley? She's a hard girl. She's a hard girl in a Harley world, but she still got time for being a Patreon. It's amazing that you can't teach Koa to read, but you're able to do that off the cuff. It's crazy. It's, like, it's insane. It's, in terms of skill set levels, it's kind of just incredible that you can do it all. What can I say? I'm the. The, the quintuple threat that you are is just <laughs> unbelievable. It's unparalleled. You know what? Let's hear from uh, even somebody else. How about let's hear from, a, I don't know, a word from our sponsors? Uh, sure. Sure, 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 sure. That's if we get sponsors at this point. Carrie. Quinlan. I want to tell you about Hydronique Hydration. Basically, what happened was that there was a frontline healthcare worker who was getting a bunch of headaches during the pandemic. And there was this research study that showed that up to 81% of frontline healthcare workers get new headaches, and it's because of their PPE. It's because of like the face masks and the shields. It prevents them from eating and drinking properly during their job. And everybody starts to feel like shit, like just tired, dehydrated. So the founder's like, okay, we need a really quick drink that has all the vitamins, the, the minerals, no sugar, keto-friendly, healthy, but everything on the market isn't what I want, so I'm going to create my own thing. And thus was born Hydronique 
hydration. Remind me something. What was your um, resolution this year? To drink more water. And so instead, I'm just going to drink Hydronique Hydration. Go ahead and get it. You can visit their website at www.hydroniquehydration.com and I will spell that. It's www.h-y-d-r-o-n-i-q-u-e hydration.com or just search Hydronique Hydration on Amazon and they are currently offering a $10 discount coupon at checkout for this next week. So We'll put the link in our bio. Go for it. Stay hydrated. Thank you to our frontline workers. We love supporting this work as well because of all the amazing work that you do for us. So, hydroniquehydration.com. Get yours. And, and we're, we're back. back. <laughs> I do like that new one that we do, the and we're back. Carrie, I've got a story for you that is long and long. <laughs> Great. Twists, turns, backflips, side angle pose. So here's my question. Triangle pose. Here's my question. When we take a month break, here's what happens. Quinn will read like a book. Quinn will like be like, I'm going to do all this research. Carrie is like, great. Got a month off. (laughs) That's accurate. I do like the night before being like, I'm out of practice. And then like really drag my feet on research. Like really drag my feet. Good for you. I am Take a... that month off. You know what happened? I read a couple true crime things uh, hanging out at my parents. I never read books, and I actually read books this month. This is not from a book. This is from the New Yorker, true crime edition, ABC, and CNN. Hard-hitting, real news, real facts. Mm. Bringing you the story of the Eastburn murders. Okay, let's go. Let's do this thing. Let's fucking go. So our story starts with a man named Gary Eastburn. He meets his future bride, Katie, at a softball game for singles. Have you gone to one of those? Um, I am on a softball league, but it's the Actors' Equity Broadway Show League softball. Uh-uh. See, a lot of straight no. guys, but a lot of old married straight guys. And a, yeah, okay. okay, well, Gary meets Katie at a softball game. How's this for romance? He says um, that it was like... Someone hit me between the eyes with a ball-peen hammer. I thought he said it sounds like someone hit me between the legs. And I was like, is this a compliment? <gasps> and then, yeah, okay. He says he was madly in love with her. Aww. They get married in 1975. Katie gets pregnant a few years later. And they end up having adorable fam. Three daughters, a dog. Flash forward 10 years Let's go to May 7th, 1985. Enter the character in this story of Tim Hennis. He's 27. He's married. He has a new little baby. He's an army sergeant in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And he's reading the local paper's classified section Mm -hmm. and sees that there's a local woman trying to sell her dog, an English setter. And the dog belongs to the first family. Katie's the one that put the article in. And the reason why is Gary also is in the Army or the um, Air Force. Okay. He's slated for a job as a liaison to the Royal Air Force. That means they would go to England. So they are (laughs) planning to move later that year, but they're worried that their dog, Dixie, won't want to move to England. Anyway, Dixie, the English setter, going to stay behind. They put the dog in the paper. Tim is like... Let's get a dog. We have a new baby. This could be fun. And his wife's like, whatever, go check out the dog. So he goes over to their house and Katie's there and meets him and says, oh, I just put my kids to bed. She has Kara, who's five, Aaron, who's three. Jana, the baby, is 22 months old. 
And Gary at this time is away um, at a squadron officer school in Alabama. So Tim's like, I think this is going to work. Takes Dixie the dog, loads the dog into his white Chevette. Wow. Same day. Loads the dog into his white Chevette, leaves. Now, four days after this, Gary is calling home trying to talk to Katie. She's not picking up. She's not picking up. Several days after that, ironically, Mother's Day, and the Eastburn's neighbor, Bob, sees that papers are building up in Katie and Gary's driveway, but that the car's there. So he goes next door and rings the bell. No one's answering, but he hears a baby crying. No. He calls the cops. They show up. How many days is this? Three days, you said? Yeah. Like four. And the baby, oh my God. They cut a hole in the screen and they go inside and Jana's in her crib crying. They see that there's a pair of jeans on the floor. There's buttons that have been ripped off a shirt. Oh my God. There's torn underwear. And they find baby Kara, who was five, under a Star Wars blanket, has been stabbed to death. Oh, my God. And they go in the master bedroom, and the three-year-old is in there dead, bludgeoned to death. And then Katie's dead, and she's naked from the waist down, and she had been stabbed and raped. All three of those bodies, their throats had been slit. They have to call Gary and be like, hey, you need to come home. And he's like, what happened? They're like, we'll tell you when you get here. He flies home, and they have to tell him what happened to his entire family except the baby who's still alive. Almost two-year-old Jana. Oh. They ask Gary if he has any ideas at all. And he's like, no, I don't know. No. Has anyone new come into your life recently? I don't know. We sold our dog. They ask Jana what happened. She's almost two. She's 22. And they're trying to be like, what happened? And she keeps repeating, like, hide from the burglar. He's going to come get me. No. They show her a picture of her mom to try to, like, see if it jogs her memory at all. And she just kisses the photo. It's, like, so sad. So the detectives... Go back to the house, collect fingerprints, collect hair. They do a luminol test. Um, it looks like there's been some smeared blood when they did a luminol test, like someone tried to clean up. Mm-hmm. Um, what's missing, Gary? You come into the house. You know your house. Tell us what's missing. That couldn't have been fun for Gary. He basically is like, there was an envelope of cash. There's an ATM card I don't see. There's a piece of paper that had the ATM passwords on it, which seems... Really shouldn't have, but that is all gone. Um, Then the detectives get contacted by this guy, Patrick Cohn, and he says, hey, on that night around 3.30 in the morning, I saw a tall white guy who had on jeans and a knit cap and a black members only jacket leave this house. And the, the guy had a garbage bag. And he said something like, 
leaving a little early this morning to me. And then when he left, I noticed he was driving a white Chevette. Like the dog. Yeah. Like Tim drives. He describes the man and they do a composite sketch. Now, it's been days at this point after the the murder and after the discovery of the murder. And Tim Hennis is at home with his baby, with his wife, Angela, with his dog, Dixie, his new dog, watching the news and hears the detectives are looking for a man that drives a white Chevette that got this English setter the previous week. Now, he and his family had heard about the murders, but had not actually connected that it was this family. Yeah. So they're like, wait, what? We got to go to the cops right away. So they go to the cops and the cops are like, this guy is a dead ringer for that composite sketch. They know that the murder was Thursday night, so they're like, Tim, where were you? And he's like, well, I drove my wife and my daughter to my in-laws. I got gas and I went home. So not not a great, not a great alibi. alibi. He's super cooperative, though. He stays. He's, and, he goes and turns himself in, essentially. Like, yeah, he's, he's like, like, oh, you're looking for me? I'm right here. What's the deal? Um, he talks to them for seven hours they're like can we have hair sure can we have saliva sure can we have like he's just giving them whatever they ask for um he says when they're like were you ever in contact with that family at all other than coming and getting this dog and he's like well katie called me thursday night must have been before this happened to ask how dixie was settling in um but other than that the only time i ever laid eyes on her was when i went to the house to get the dog um they give patrick photos of white dudes in hats and he picks Tim out of it and is like it's that guy in addition to Tim being a dead ringer for the sketch they get a warrant they go to Tim's house Tim is at this point getting kind of annoyed with them and Mm -hmm. being a little bit like I hope you guys know what you're fucking doing like he's getting a little aggressive a little bit like now you're getting a search warrant fine fuck you Um, he's got kind of a personality, we'll mm-hmm, say. Mm-hmm. More witnesses are coming forward to say they saw a white Chevette that night in the area. Then Tim's ex comes forward and says, that night Tim came to my house and told me that his wife wasn't around. And it seemed like maybe he was looking for sex. So the idea that they get is, did Tim go to his ex and try to have sex with her? She was not into it. And then he went to the next home mm-hmm. that he could think of, which was, there's that woman that lives alone that I got a dog from. Did he go in and kill her kids and her and rape her? That feels like a very big leap. Right. But more and more things are coming to light. Friday morning, the morning after the murders, Tim took a sing- uh, took Friday morning, the day after the murders, Tim took an item of clothing to be dry cleaned. Guess what the item was? A black members-only jacket. Remember, that's the jacket the guy saw. So then, Saturday, Tim's neighbors say they saw him have, like, a bonfire in a barrel over the course of a few hours. Which, if that's the case, Tim, do you love that jacket? (laughs) Because, like, you should have just burnt the jacket instead of taking it to the dry cleaners. They start to find out more and more about Tim, that he has a history of financial problems, that he has 
prior convictions for writing bad checks. Then they start tracking the ATM card that's missing. It was used on May 10th at 11 at night, on May 11th at 9 in the morning, and both times the max was withdrawn, which is around, uh, I think, $150. Mm-hmm. Tim's rent was $310, and he was late that month, but did pay it. But he paid it after those two withdrawals we know happened. Then they tracked down the woman that was at the ATM because they can know what time it is. They find the woman that was at the ATM behind whoever withdrew that money. Yeah. Right? And they're like, do you remember anything? And she's like, ah, tall man with blonde hair, camouflage pants, got into a light colored car. Basically, he's going to go to trial. And before trial, they're like, Tim, do you want to do a plea deal? And he's like, no, I didn't do this. So it's 86 and the trial takes place. And they do this thing where they make the jury sit silently for three and a half minutes to illustrate how long the woman was in line behind the guy at the ATM. And then they're like, tell us what you saw. Um, Patrick says this is the guy, like point fingers to him, okay? When they do the closing argument, the prosecutor says, there's your baby killer. He's the one responsible for the deaths of these kids and their mother. The man responsible for taking their lives is sitting in this courtroom, breathing the same air as you are. And hopefully it won't be for much longer. They deliberate 10 hours. They come back guilty on all counts, which is three counts of first-degree murder and one of rape, to which they're going to take Tim out and lead him to prison, and he, like, takes off his wedding ring and gives it to somebody and is like, tell my wife I love her. Um, They put him in a suicide prevention cell, and three days later, he's sentenced to death. So he's in prison awaiting death, and he gets a letter, which was postmarked the day after he was sentenced, and it says, Dear Mr. Hennis, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry you're doing the time. I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X. So he gets that in prison and he's like showing people being like, what do I do? Poor Gary. Gary's lost his whole family. He cancels England like the move, but... Later, in 1988, he does end up going with Jana. Then, Tim Hennis, who's been appealing, he argued that there was too many graphic images shown by the prosecute, by the prosecution, and that that... He's grasping at straws. He's just, like, trying well, this to is any really appeal because he's death, you know? This is interesting, though, because he's saying, you showed too many of these gruesome pictures. It got the jury really riled up against me. This goes to the Supreme Court. And so Gary flies back. A retrial is awarded. And this argument becomes known as the Hennis ruling. And defense attorneys after that will try for this all the time to be like, we have to limit how many photographs of the, the jury's allowed to see. Are they redundant? Um, or could they unfairly prejudice the jury? So it becomes... Kind of an important uh, uh, thing that happens. Um, So now they're having this retrial, and their goal in it is to discredit Patrick, the eyewitness. Okay? Patrick makes it easy. He's been behaving like a 
idiot and telling people that he can do whatever he wants because he was a witness for the cops. And they prove that the night that Patrick saw um, this guy in the knit cap and the jacket, that it was really overcast and that he was describing it as clear. They also introduced the letter for Mr. X. Um, they also talk about how in the first trial, they didn't talk about how Katie had received threatening phone calls in the middle of the night from somebody who knew her name and said they were coming over. We find out that the woman that was at the ATM originally told the investigators, I don't remember anything. So we're not really sure where between I didn't remember anything. It turned into this this very clear description. There were footprints found out that found outside the home that were three sizes smaller than Tim. There was some blood and hair in the house that did not belong to the victims and did not belong. He didn't to have Tim. any. There was no DNA that connected him to the case either in his trial. No, no, there wasn't. Um, his jacket, that members only jacket, had no blood stains. And at first they're like, well, it's because you've got it dry cleaned. But then they do this whole luminol test in front of everyone that, like, basically they put blood on something. They use a really good chemical to take it off. And they show that there's still trace amounts, mm-hmm. but that the jacket does not have trace amounts. So they're like, no, right. really, there was no blood. There's a new eyewitness, um, a newspaper delivery gal who's like, oh, at 2 a.m. I saw a long haired man driving a light colored van. Right. So they're like, was it a white Chevette? Was it a light colored van? And then I think the big thing that happens is that they find out that in this neighborhood lives a tall, blonde teenage boy that looks like Tim Hennis and that he has a habit of taking late night walks on this road and that he does it a lot around 3 a.m. And what does he wear? A members only jacket and a knit cap. Exactly. Exactly. So the defense says you have physical evidence crying to you, just absolutely crying to you that he is not the man. You've got a pubic hair in there that ain't him. They're putting a doggone square peg in a round hole and it doesn't fit and it stinks. That's what they say. So, not guilty on all counts, suddenly. Poor Gary. I mean, poor Gary and Jana. Like, you know, they thought, you know, my heart goes after them because, like, this guy clearly, I mean, it seems like he's not the guy, although that there's a lot of damning evidence. Well, oh, the yeah. detectives still feel like they had their man. Um, And this case is getting attention from the North Carolina Actual Innocence Commission, who deal with wrongful convictions. After the acquittal, Tim is re-enlisted and gets three years of back pay, a good conduct medal, and gets a promotion to staff sergeant. And then in 1990, he goes off to Saudi Arabia for Operation Desert Shield, and he gets a bunch of awards for that service. And... Everybody likes him. His friends call him a gentle giant. He ends up having another child, and they all move to Fort Lewis in Washington, and he becomes like his son's scout master. Right. Um, He retires in 2004 from the Army and then gets a job at a waste treatment facility. Meanwhile, Gary returns to England, gets remarried to a British nurse, leaves the Air Force and is abroad in England a while. And then he and his new wife move back with Jana. Mm -hmm. Um, So DNA testing, 
in the late 80s, meh. Now we're in 2005, 20 years after the murders, and they did have sperm that had been taken from Katie's body and never tested. So the crime still hasn't been solved. No one's been put away. So they test it. This is crazy to me. They put it in for testing. They get the result a year later. Oh my God, the backlog of DNA testing is so long. Guess whose sperm it is? Tim fucking Hennis. Tim fucking Hennis. The detective calls Gary and is like, Gary, not going to fucking believe this. I'm sorry. My gut just dropped. It was him the whole time. Double jeopardy. Already been tried. Double jeopardy. So, I don't know if you remember, but this happened in a case we talked about um, with Jeffrey McDonald. He was in the army, but he's not in the army anymore. So what happens is, I'm going to just explain, army regulations are that if a person... You can get get convicted. There's certain army laws. So does he get tried under army? You can be tried in a civilian court, and you can be court-martialed. So they call in military attorneys and they're like, this is what we found. And they're like, but he's retired. And they're like, well, okay, we're going to ask the secretary of the army to recall Tim to active duty and then charge him with three counts of murder. Did they do it? Because they can't, by the way, they can't charge him anymore with the rape. Statute of limitations. They do it. Oh my God. But they do it. He like turned himself in. That is so insane so they arrest him well when i say they arrest him that's not totally what happens they recall him to the army and they charge him weirdly for a month he still collects military pay and benefits and he's not confined or restricted at all he can actually even he works half days and then in the afternoon he meets with his attorneys so he's not like in prison well court martialing, um, i think probably is different that is so... It's totally different, court martial. And it's very controversial that they did this because uh, this was the quote I read and I was like, ooh, this is tricky. Why does someone who dedicates their life to defending this country have less rights for a non-military offense as compared to mm-hmm. a run-of-the-mill mm-hmm. civilian? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that. This is insane. So I am shocked. In these court martial cases, the jurors are actually called members um, and in order to achieve a conviction, two thirds of them have to be like he's guilty. And to get a death sentence, they all have to be like he's guilty and they all have to agree on the punishment. OK, so now we're 21 years after he was declared innocent and the defense goes the route of saying because they can't deny the sperm, the DNA. So they're like now like. Well, maybe they had consensual sex and someone else did all these murders. And maybe they had sex the day he went to get the dog and the sperm was still in her body. And then someone else came in and did these murders because, you know, her husband was a soldier and was away. And we all know how that goes, how when the soldier leaves home, the wife strays. Here's the thing. (laughs) Suggesting... That when soldiers are gone, their wives always cheat on them. Is to like a room full a, of soldiers is like actually not a great. I'm like tactic. know your audience. They're all like, "What are you saying about my wife?" <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh Doesn't my god, this is shocking, Quinn. So the jury's like, guilty. Death penalty is confusing because they are like, isn't that a little bit about if this is a contributing member to society? This guy got away with murder, was out 20 years, and did contribute to society. Mm-hmm. He went to Desert Storm mm-hmm. and won all these medals. He was like a scout leader. He was in many ways on paper an exemplary civilian. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just, it's like... I mean, listen, I don't believe in the death penalty. I think we've talked about that 20 fucking million times on this podcast. Well, during Sorry, 20 the sentencing times phrase, times but right. During the sentencing, Gary takes the stand and they're like, what do you miss most? And he just says them i miss being with them and his daughter grows up without a mother without her sisters so the verdict is all of the members concur and sentence you this is so the verdict they say to him is all of the members concur and sentence you to be reduced to the grade of e1 to forfeit all pay and allowances to be dishonorably discharged from the service and to be put to death. Tim Hennis appeals. They say that his break in service makes this whole thing basically unfair and that he shouldn't have been Mm -hmm. prosecuted to begin with. Gary says he would like to see him rot in jail and that Gary says, I don't feel any burning desire to have him hanged or shot or whatever they do. I just want him in jail. Yeah. Without the possibility of parole. And Jana is now 26 years old and says, he took the opportunity from me to remember or have my mom at graduation, at prom, or anything like that. And this final conviction brought her some peace, you know. She says that it gave her closure and that it made her feel more connected to the situation. She says, for me to be there and see all the emotion from everybody, my dad, the whole courtroom... That really helped me feel a lot more emotionally connected to my mom and two sisters. My biggest thing is why didn't he kill me? Why didn't he? I don't know. We don't know. I mean. Oh, my God. What happens? What a monster. What a fucking monster. Tim is transferred to Fort Leavenworth in Texas. Uh, He's still there today. He's the only person who has been tried for life three times and had not guilty and guilty verdicts. Um, He's probably not going to get put to death because um, you need presidential approval for military execution. And that hasn't actually even happened since the 60s. So probably not going to happen. But that is the story of the Eastburn family murders. Oh, my word. Crazy story. That's an insane story. I can't believe it. What a roller coaster. We're so used to, like, wrongful convictions, so it felt like we were rooting from great telling of that story, Quinn. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And now, a word from our sponsors. Okay. I have to tell you a really cool, fun way to shop, and you will also be supporting another, another dear, dear reader. reader. Yes. Because Patreon subscriber, dearest reader, Harley. Harley! has a totally rad business with her husband. 
They're called a witch, a witch and a woodsman and a woodsman. And their website is a witch and a woodsman LLC.com. It's so fun. I love their site. I love their products. They sent us a few things and I'm in love. They do homemade spell candles that have like crystals in them and are different scents. They have custom spell jars, small, medium, and large that I feel like would, would be really fun to buy, but also their stuff is so cute. I love it for gift ideas. And you're shopping small business, which is something we love. Yeah. They've got a bunch of really interesting stuff. You can buy a spell kit and it's in a really pretty wooden box. Everything is wrapped just cute and pretty. That's why I said I think it would make a great gift. And then they also have um, aromatherapy necklaces. Mm. They're really pretty, though. They're like in different precious sort of stones and crystals. Everything they do is customizable. So you can look through their site and figure out exactly what you want and let them know. And it's Harley. So you'll be talking to... Another person that listens to Truly Darkly Creepily being like, I heard about it on the show. And in fact, you know I heard about it on the show because Because you're using the code TDC10 for 10% off. Love it. Love. Thank you, Harley, for giving that promo code to your fellow dear readers. It's so nice and generous. Harley, we love them. We love you. And we love a witch and a woodsman. So everybody get online right now. Let's support them. Go to a witch witch and and a a woodsman. LLC.com and buy yourself some handmade wooden steel tipped darts. Here's the thing. You know, I have a hard time finding a bra. Like, you know, and it's really hard to find bras that are comfortable, that work, that don't have an underwire. This website, Davy Piper, their whole mission is a comfortable bra for every woman of every size. I am wearing a bra that is not underwire, that fits me, that is incredibly comfortable. Which bra do you have on now? I have on the Nelly Simply bra. It's a wireless bra and I got it in Twilight, which is like really cute mauve color. I came here in another bra. And she switched into this bra. I switched into this bra. I tried it on. And I was like, well, I'm wearing the Francesca Capri leggings. They are so comfortable. It's crazy. They're high-waisted, which I love. They're great for working out. They're great for working out. I could put my phone in the pocket. I also just want to say, too, that, like, the Davy Piper mission statement, I'm I'm really into. Um, they believe in, like, confident style and comfort no matter age or body type. You can go to um, DavyPiper.com and use the discount code TDC20 and save 20% on your purchase. That's D-A-V-Y-P-I-P-E-R.com. TDC20. Go and let your boobs breathe. (laughs) (laughs) And we're back. Um, Okay, so I'm doing the story of Bonnie Garland. Do you know this little story? No, I don't know this little story. story. I got this information from Wikipedia. The courtroom sketches of Ida Libby Ongrave. I think it was like virginia.edu. It was like a law school, but they had courtroom sketches. The Daily News. So... Bonnie Garland is from an affluent family. She's the daughter of a successful lawyer. Her father, like, I guess affluent family. Her father, I don't think, was well off, but then became a lawyer and they're well off. Um, And she was a really sweet girl. She was a soloist with the Yale Glee Club. She was a cute little redheaded soprano. Um, And she's a student at Yale in 1977. 
So it's like she comes from Scarsdale, New York, lots of money. You know, she goes to Yale. That's like a Taylor's oldest time kind of vibe. Yeah. She meets Richard Heron, who's three years older than her. Yes, he's three years older than her. I found two different, a bunch of articles conflicted whether they met when she was a freshman and he was a junior or she was a freshman and he was a senior. Um, But Richard Heron, he comes from East L.A. um, and he grew up not well off. His parents were not married. His dad was drunk. Um, However, this guy was really bright. He had an IQ of 130 and he was the valedictorian of his high school and he gets into Yale and he sort of becomes a hero of his neighborhood, you know, kind of like making it out of like a really hard situation. Um, he ends up getting a full ride to Yale. And it's reported that while at Yale, he struggled, you know, I mean, he he was the smartest kid in his school. And then he went into this like he was the big fish in a little pond and he went to Yale and he was the, you know, little fish in a really big pond um, and he was barely passing. But he but he graduates he meets um bonnie garland and the two of them fall in love and she's a freshman he's a junior or senior they spend like a year together he graduates and then he's going to get his master's um in texas Mm -hmm. so before he left he they had like talked about getting married you know no it was like tentative plans to get married so the next year they're living apart and, you know, they talked on the phone. They wrote letters. Apparently, he wrote a letter to her where he just wrote, I love you 125 times, which feels like a lot. It feels like my sister in third grade, a letter she wrote to Leonardo DiCaprio. Brianna? Yeah. She would just write things over and, over, said, and over, yeah. over and over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. <laughs> I wish someone told you I loved you 125 times. Um, just kidding. I don't know. I think it's overkill. It's but... a little too much. Well, funny you say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Spoiler alert. Hey. Um, so the two, as one does in your late teens, early 20s, you grow apart not being with each other, except he's in love with her. And she's at Yale. She's meeting new guys, soloist of the Yale Glee Club. She's like, you know what? Like... I want to see other people. Yeah, like, totally. It's college It's time. 1977. She's like, I just want to fucking see other people. She writes him a letter. She's like, I'm seeing other people. And I think, you know, when I read that, I was like, oh, did they not break up or whatever? I think it was like they were dating, but probably like in the 70s, it was a little like people weren't necessarily like sleeping with each other and exclusive. I don't know what the vibe was. I don't know what they We weren't there. We weren't there. So the two grow apart. He's 23. She's 20. She wants to see other people. She wants to end the relationship. She starts, like, seeing other guys she might be interested in. She writes a letter to him being like, I'm seeing someone else. We shouldn't see each other. And he's like, listen, let me come out to see you to talk about this. And so she's pretty resolved. But she's like, all right, come out. Let's have this conversation in person. So with her permission, he goes to visit Bonnie at her parents' house um, to discuss their relationship. He flies out there July 3rd, 1977. So he stays on the opposite end of the house in the guest room. And he's there. And they don't talk about this, but I assume it's just awkward, right? Like, I assume, like, it's her parents, her two younger siblings, her brother and sister, Mm -hmm. Her boyfriend, who she wants to be an ex-boyfriend, and she's trying to break up with him, and it's just awkward. 
So they have like the full talk July 6th, three days after he's there. And they talk and she's like, listen, there's no convincing me otherwise. I want to see other people. And he's planning on leaving the next day. Mm -hmm. So they go to sleep at two o'clock in the morning. Richard wakes up and he walks down to the family basement. He gets a hammer. He walks up to Bonnie's room up three flights. He has a towel that he's wrapped around the hammer. He puts it down outside of her room, walks into her room to make sure she's still asleep. See, she's still asleep. He walks out. He grabs the hammer, claw side, and he smashes her in the head. He bludgeons her. Her skull is in pieces. He then leaves, takes her family car, takes the family car. He drives for hours and he ends up in Cox, uh, Coxsackie, which is 100 miles north of Scarsdale. He finds a church. He goes in. He finds a priest and he tells him, I just killed my girlfriend. The priest then calls Scarsdale police, tells them what he heard. The police go to the Garland family home. They knock on the door at 8 o'clock in the morning. Her parents answer the door. The police are like, we have a report. Thing okay? We have a report that your daughter has been hurt. They go upstairs to Bonnie's room. She's gurgling. She's breathing. She's barely alive, holding on. But her skull is in pieces. She's taken to the hospital. She survives 20 hours and then dies July 8th. Heron is immediately arrested. Um, But what's noteworthy about this case is a bunch of the priests and the clergy members from Yale basically campaign around him. He gets all this support from the clergy at Yale. Well, what they say is he's come from this, like, really underprivileged part of L.A. And he's actually has good character. And, you know, you should let him out on bail. And because of the power of the church, like, nuns support him. He gets this, like, insane amount of sympathy. Do you think it's because the first place he went? Was confession? Possibly. I bet that was appealing to them. Well, they were like, you know, maybe he, you, they saw his remorse. They believe in forgiveness. I don't know. But the amount of people that started rallying around Richard Heron after bludgeoning his girlfriend to death is pretty remarkable. Right. The sympathy went immediately from the victim of the crime to the murderer, to the perpetrator of the crime. Right. It reminded me a little bit of the preppy murder. In a lot of ways where it's like he grew up, you know, a fear of abandonment and all this stuff. And so the church runs sort of to his defense. They appeal to the judge about letting him out on bail. They raise money. They help, like, raise his bail. They write letters about his good character. They say he's a victim of his upbringing. And eventually this Yale pediatrician ends up putting her house on collateral for his bail. He gets, like, all of this support from the Yale community and the Catholic community. They put his money up for bail, and he's released 
in the care he's released to the care of the Christian brothers in Albany. So odd. Her father, Bonnie's father, says Yale people, past and present, have rushed to the aid and support of the killer in an organized and systematic manner. While he is waiting trial, he's taking classes at the State University of New York under an alias. So you're sitting next to him. You don't fucking know. You don't fucking know. He just murdered his girlfriend. Wow. His ex-girlfriend. You don't know. This is a small town that, like, hasn't seen a lot of murder. This is a very... um, It's an affluent town. So, of course, like, that fear of, like, this could never happen here is happening here. Mm -hmm. And so the media gets involved. So the prosecutors want to charge him with second-degree murder. His supporters end up getting famous New York defense attorney Jack Littman, who never lost a homicide case. He agrees to defend... Um, Heron for a low fee because it was, quote, an obvious human tragedy. Hmm. Okay. The human tragedy is that she's Bonnie dead. was murdered. So he defends him. He says that, you know, Richard has this fear of abandonment that sparked his insanity that um, resulted in an emotional disturbance. So it's basically a plea of insanity that, like, his fear of abandonment and his upbringing led him to, like, a psychiatric break that made him kill her. But it's like, he woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning, went to the basement, walked up three flights of stairs, checked on her if she was asleep, came out. Like, the amount it's of, like, it wasn't, like... It's not a heated fight, either. No. It's not like they're in the middle of a heated fight. He went up and he, like... He went, like, he went and got, yeah, all it's the like stuff the that you went through. of, like, the amount There's of, a lot of times there's you go, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. Walking up three flights of stairs... Checking on her, wrapping it in a towel, and hitting her in the head once, claw side first. Not only that, but I'm thinking about how you said he drove really far, went and did the confession. It's like, it it feels like she had been lying there with a chance. Hours. So there's all those hours after that there was a chance of helping her, too, that he is responsible for. Because she did end up dying. Maybe he didn't know she know. Maybe he assumed she died. Maybe he, maybe he didn't know she was. Either way, it's right. like, either way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's a psychiatric testimony that backed up the defense. Um, How old are they again? He's 23. She's 20. Yeah. He spent four years at Yale. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, it, yeah, I, so they wanted to try him, right? The prosecutors wanted to charge him with second degree murder. He was convicted of a reduced charge of manslaughter. Hmm. Because he pleaded that it was under extreme emotional disturbance, Um, excusing him from maximum responsibility. Wow. He was sentenced to a maximum penalty of 17 years in prison. Bonnie's family is like, this guy just got away with murder. He just successfully got away with murder. He was released from prison in 1995. Bonnie's parents ended up suing him in civil court um, when he was released, and they were awarded $40,000. It's nothing. Yeah. After his release, they want their fucking kid back. After his release in 1997, he was hired by a mental health foundation to run a safe community agency in New Mexico. What? Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem like a great job for him. 
His plan, by the way, Richard Heron had later said that his plan was to kill her and kill himself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is just, like, so fucking cowardly. Because you just kill her then? No. No. That's a lie. You don't, like, like, you know what I mean? It's like, that's a fucking lie. You don't say, I'm going to kill myself, and then I killed her, and I'm like, oops, I changed my fucking mind. I'm going to skip the me part. I mean, you know what? I saw how violent it was, and you know what? I I didn't love that for Man, me. I didn't love that for me. So I went to the Catholic Church, and I, I confessed... Could you imagine? I mean, my heart just breaks. It's like this, it's this incredible, it, it really is just so insane to me that the sympathy goes from the victim to the murderer in a way that was like orchestrated by the Especially Catholic Church. Especially in that community and like, that was also both of their communities. But also it was her community that she was That's murdered insane. in. His community was Yale, but like. But so was hers. Exactly. Ugh. Exactly. Oi, oi, oi. Really bad. Well, thank you for telling that story, You're Welcome. Gary. You're welcome. I want to say it was my pleasure, but it was... The opposite of that. It was opposites of pleasure day. Um, yeah, I don't... I don't have anything to say yeah. except um, I'm really happy to see you, and I'll see... And I'll, we'll talk to you all next week. I'm so happy to see you, too. That's my rose. <laughs> the rest is my thorn. Thank <laughs> you.